0: Thank you for listening to the Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. We still talk about the British conquering India, but that phrase disguises a more sinister reality. It wasn't the British government that seized India at the end of the 18th century, but a dangerously unregulated private company headquartered in one small office five windows wide in London and managed in India by an unstable sociopath. The East India Company was a model of corporate efficiency. A hundred years into its history, it had only 35 permanent employees in its head office. Nevertheless, that skeleton staff executed a corporate coup unparalleled in history. The military conquest, subjugation and plunder of vast tracts of southern Asia. It almost certainly remains the supreme act of corporate violence in world history. The words of the historian William Dalrymple talking about the East India Company, Tom
1: Holland. William Dalrymple, I believe, is a man you know well. He is a, a great hero of mine, a um, wonderful man, and uh, more mainly from the point of view of this podcast, um, a wonderful historian um, whose books, The Anarchy, White Moguls, Return of a King, The Last Mughal, um, anyone interested in Indian or British history, I'm sure, will have come across. And if they haven't then they're very lucky because they've just been issued in um, a wonderful bumper pack the company quartet um willie is with us absolutely Hello. thrilled to have you Good morning. Um, i hope he's
0: pleased with your with your
1: plug uh,
2: i'm very pleased well i I, I, I promised him
1: a massive plug and i'm i'm more than happy to oblige. it was
2: conditional it was condi- my appearance was conditional on a massive plug.
1: <laughs> willie was that a big enough plug <laughs>
2: It was big Just, <laughs> i going to the give chocolate. you an even. I'm, if you want to carry
1: on plugging, I won't stop. Well, no, you. I've got an. I've Hold got. On. I've got an additional plug because. Um, oh, we we'll go for it. You are being recorded here on Zoom because your phone cannot cope with. Uh, you, you don't have. You've <laughs> deleted the app because you've got so many photographs on it. And the reason you've got so many photographs on it is obviously you're a great photographer. And one other plug: Willie's exhibition of photographs, uh, at "The Traveller's Eye," is open at the Grosvenor Gallery in London at the moment. So, Willie. I feel I've paid my dues. You have done so hard. It's... There
2: must be a but coming now. <laughs> there, yeah, is there is. There's a massive but. Now you have to butt. answer a load of questions. There's a massive but
1: because, like, like, um, like a. Can I just go now? <laughs> like, are the goings good? <laughs> like a British merchant eyeing up the riches of the East. I have paid my dues and now I want to extort from Got your you. your I want to extort your knowledge of um, the East India Company, which is the subject of our podcast episode today. Um,. As you say, I mean, it is a a stunning story. It's so peculiar. A a private company basically (laughs) taking over the richest, most venerable uh, land in the world. I mean, it's absolutely weird when you think about it. You've written about it for 20 years. Do you still find it odd when you contemplate it?
2: I find it even odder, actually, at the end of 20 years than I did at the beginning, because like all historians of the East India Company, you still have that victorian shadow lurking somewhere in your mind that sees this as something done by the british uh and it it has this nationalist um feeling to the story because so much of what has been written up until the modern times sees it as a national story the story of, of the british conquest of india and the fact that it was a bunch of merchants and a bunch of very corrupt merchants who were who were recognised at the time as quite spectacularly corrupt and badly mannered and uh, uh, and sort of uh, an embarrassment to the nation. Uh, and it's extraordinary and rather encouraging to see how much the, the newspapers of the time excoriate the return nabobs uh, up and down the land, local local newspapers, whether in Shropshire or Yorkshire or Cornwall uh, or East Anglia. And I've had great fun getting them all out and, and, and reading them. Uh, all unite in horror uh, at these sort of and, and partly it's a snobbery. Partly, it's very much the same set of English prejudices that were directed against merchant bankers and hedge fund managers um, of the sort who would crash their Porsches into expensive city restaurants. Um, And there's a feeling that these guys have got ill-gotten wealth, that they haven't worked for it, that that they haven't been educated, they don't know how to behave. And there's all that set of prejudices. But there's also, perhaps surprisingly, uh, some real indignation at what they were doing to India. Uh, and it's not just at the top end. It's not just Hor- Horace Walpole sitting in uh, Twickenham, harumphing into his diary. Uh, you can, you know, up and down the land, the uh, uh, protests against, particularly Clive and the Bengal famine, and uh, uh, plays are put on in the Haymarket where Clive is satirised as Lord Vulture. So it's so it, it was something that was known at the time, but somehow in the 19th century it became a national story, and then the. Um, In India, it became uh, an uh, anti-colonial nationalism, obviously, that uh, uh, the East India Company was just seen as an arm of of, of the evil British Empire. Uh, And in Indian historiography, too, it's talked of as the British. Uh, But it isn't uh, any more than, you know, Facebook is the Americans, or Google is the Americans. It has American staff, it also has other people working for it. And to me, the kind of thing that came through last, really, and I only realised as, as I was finishing the book, I think, was the extent to which not only was it coming out of one office with this initially skeleton staff, thirty-five people, a little bit before Classy, um, but uh, uh, it was um, it, it, it was just it was, it was an extraordinary um, uh, shadow operation. Even in India, there were only two hundred and fifty white people, well into the 18th century, uh, in the administrative hub, and the fighting, of which there was a great deal, was done by Indians. So, you know, of the, the East India Company army, just uh, in 1799, just as Britain is rearming to meet Napoleon, uh, is 200,000, which is exactly double the size of the British army, which is 100,000 men. And those are not white soldiers, you know, imported from the shires. Those are Indians trained up as mercenaries. And where's the money coming from to pay them? It's borrowed from Indian bankers. So it's the most extraordinary con uh, operation in, in, in <laughs> history that Indians uh, were persuaded to finance and, and die for the sake of a British company and, and, and British shareholders. And And also what's lovely about it is that, you know, in this, rising din of the debate on empire and colonialism, the, you know, there are various claims made by the likes of Nigel Bigger and so on for what the empire did and bringing civilization and the, you know, the generosity of the empire builders and all that line of argument. The great thing about East India Company is none of that washes at all because the, the company is very clearly there only to make a profit. Uh, They never pretend to be about anything else. I mean, no one joins Goldman Sachs to feed the the starving of of Africa. Uh, And and the East India Company was the Goldman Sachs of its day. You joined it to make a fortune. Most people didn't. Most people died young. Uh, But if they lived until their... Uh, and, and came home, the chances are they could come home and build a gorgeous uh, Trust big property. Palladian mansion, yeah. which is now in the hands of the National Trust. That's so, Willie, let's backtrack a have... bit.
0: Let's let's give a bit of context for <laughs> Sorry, the I've given,
2: I've given a bit of a fast forward there. But <laughs> no, yes. no,
0: no, don't worry. Um, so we've got lots of questions from listeners. So Tim Wright asks a question which we should probably start with he says when it was set up did the east india company have a clear vision a company ethos and did it change over time or maybe we can deal with the change over time later on but talk to us about so when is it set up and who are they and 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 what do they want
2: so the east india company when it's set up is really a completely different beast in every single way from the uh the heyday of the east india company from plassey onwards 1765 When the company is set up, uh, the first meetings take place in 1599, which is the year that uh, Shakespeare is writing Hamlet, uh, and they happen uh, in this, you know, just a mile away from the Globe Theatre in in a now lost building called um, uh, Moorgate Hall uh, in in Moorgate Fields. Um, When that happens, Britain has no empire. There are the first colonies being set up uh, very shakily in Virginia. Um, You have uh, the first Protestant colonies arriving and being knocked back in Ireland. And the rich boys uh, on the block are the Spanish and the Portuguese, who are successfully plundering Incas and Aztecs and shipping gold from Colombia and and all the rest of it. Uh, And the British at this point are very much on the rim of Europe, ephemeral. They've just cut themselves off. From the most powerful force in Europe, not the EC but the Papacy, uh, in the sixteenth century, uh, and um, they're on their own. And they, what do they do? They turn with sort of piratical enthusiasm uh, to what is politely called privateering, and they're licensed to go out and um, uh, 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 and raid Portuguese and uh, and and Spanish shipping. And this is what happens. So this is this is the spirit of Drake and Raleigh and, and- absolutely. And, and the actual first ship which which is renamed uh, the Red Dragon to make it sound like a nice pub near you in Chalk Valley, Tom. Uh, uh, it was originally called the Scourge of Malice and it was a pirate ship. It's literally, you know, Jolly Rogers, all that. Uh, and a lot of the sailors were clearly, uh, uh, they, they actually described themselves in the, in the initial meeting of the East India Company, which we've got full notes and, and a list of everyone that turned up in their profession. And they described themselves as privateers. They were pirates. They were, you know, the... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Tom Hollander figure, as opposed to the Tom Holland yeah. uh, in uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the, the and, and so so, the merchants
1: who are doing it they're, they're they're kind of pooling resources because this is a very risky venture. Is that right?
2: So it's a hugely risky venture. Uh, it had absolutely no prospect of uh, of initial success, uh, and uh, uh, the earlier voyage that Sir James Lanchester, the, uh, the the original uh, uh, sea captain who who led the first voyage, had had sunk. And all his crew had been eaten by cannibals. <laughs> so, I mean, you couldn't have put your money on a <laughs> uh, on, on a less likely venture. And, and than Willie, Willie, just, j- just one, one thing.
1: Also, the East Indies is not India at this point, is it? It's it's That's, kind of so this Indonesia.
2: point: they're not, they're not uh, the great trade of the East India Company in the peak period uh, that we're talking about. The the the, the trade that generated uh, the money that financed all this initially came from the textile trade with India. But at the beginning. Neither textiles nor uh, India were in the picture. They were looking to trade in spices and in what we today would call Indonesia, um, particularly this island of Run, uh, where all the nutmeg came from, which Charles Milton has, has written so wonderfully about in, in Nathaniel's Nutmeg. So they're not aiming at India, they're not aiming at uh, the, the Indian uh, textile trade, they're aiming at something completely different in a different part of the world. And and as they're pirates, on the initial voyage, they see, even before they get there, a Portuguese ship coming the opposite direction. So they go into sort of auto-plunder auto, <laughs> auto plunder mode. And they just Nick literally, it. they jump on the ship. They transfer all the, uh, the and that's it. And then they sail back. They They their house, and they sail home <laughs> and, and sell it for a million pounds. A job so well done. Great. So huge profit.
1: And so that's, that then sets up the, uh, that, that's that's the kind of funding. The game. next few voyages. Right.
2: Yeah. But again, they're not, these guys are, you know, again, not, you know, the best on the block at this. And to their great irritation, the Dutch, who've been a little bit ahead of them and done a couple of voyages, which actually sparked this off because it's the Dutch sailors coming to London and trying to buy London boats for this. That get that rankles with the kind of Shakespearean pride of Elizabethan codpiece London. <laughs> well, I think that's London. fair enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's fair enough, absolutely. So you can't have our ship. So instead, they so while the Dutch are still sitting waiting in their hotel, uh, the English merchants say have a little meeting and say we'll do our own and, and tell them to piss that's off. I mean, that's literally how it the goes. authentic spirit of the city of London
0: flourishing <laughs>
1: even then. Absolutely. So, but so so Willie, yeah. you mentioned the Dutch. So so basically, the Dutch and the Portuguese have already muscled in on this spice trade.
2: And, and Spanish, yeah. But,
1: but, Spanish are but, the, the
2: other, other hemisphere, but are very much sailing around the same city.
1: The mention of the Dutch, that they are kind of the proto-capitalists and the English, yeah. they essentially are blazing a path that the English
2: and then the British in due course will follow. Well, yes and no, because there's two important things. So the, the Dutch come up with the idea of, um, of, of a stock exchange, which is later imported to, to Britain. And they come up with a lot of financial instruments, which are brought over at the time of William of Orange. But the thing which the English seem to have come up with is the idea of the joint stock company. Oh, so and that's ours. That's our invention. That, that's ours. Oh, Very proud. It's of the that. Muscovy Company, which which. Uh, the East India Company is 1599, but the Muscovy Company, from memory, is something like 1520. It's a, it's a good 60 years early. So That's furs and stuff uh, from and that's, Russia, presumably. Yeah, and that's furs and sable from 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 the Volga and, and all this sort of thing. And then they even that gets kind of diverted eastwards because, um, due to various wars, a lot of the Muscovy merchants come back through Persia, um, and that and that again sort of extends the Elizabethan eye eastwards.
0: Um, and then but, at what point, Willie, do they do they start to? What point? So India is not in the picture at this point, really. Not at but, all. So not at what at, point does India specifically enter the picture?
2: So it's rather like imagine uh, uh, a startup today, and uh, its its initial offering uh, is to do one thing in one place. Let's say. Do a podcast uh, for historians, for right. example. That's a very good, uh, and, very good, uh, and, well chosen and example. Say, and, and let's say, just for the sake of argument, the podcast is a complete failure; and no one listens. This is a very badly chosen example. <laughs> 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 then, uh, yeah. then they decide instead to do videos on science fiction, uh, and that's rather what happens to these syndicate companies. Right. They, they move from doing. They, 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 they tried to get the spices from Indonesia, but the Dutch are just richer. They got bigger ships. They got better finance uh they've got much better finance that's ultimately the thing and um they and various wars the famous samboina massacre and all this sort of thing goes on in the 16 30s 40s and 50s and eventually the um the the the, the, the english basically bailed uh, and there's already been a few exploratory voyages that have reached Surat, the Mughal port on the coast of Gujarat, uh, and also to Thatta, which was the uh, often forgotten Mughal port uh, at the base of the Indus. And that's what they begin to focus. So they they get kind a of relaunch in 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 the 1640s. No longer about Indonesia, no longer about spices. It's now about textiles and in India. Uh, and they and then they there's one final change is that they basically migrate their, their the bulk of their uh, energy from the west coast of India, where the Mughals were uh, uh, largely exporting and looking westwards, right round to the Hooghly, and they found Calcutta. And Calcutta, bizarrely, because it's it's damp, boggy, uh, disease-ridden, uh, and thoroughly unpromising in every human way, nonetheless proves to be the big, the big money spinner, because that's where the best textiles are being produced. And by the uh, by about 1700, India astonishingly is producing 40% of the world's uh, GDP at a time when the British are on about six. Uh, English, sorry, it's not Britain, it's England specifically. It's on about six percent. So Willie, and and so the, the there's this huge imbalance of of power in that the uh, the Moguls are the richest. It's a unified state with a million men under arms, very tightly and rigidly organised, uh, very very. Uh, unpleasant punishments for those who who break the rules, uh, and the Elizabethans come in initially as sort of you know um, stumbling uh, Im- uh, economic migrants, uh, pleading to, uh, to to do business in this very very rich country, and. So often we think of well, just final that we think, we think of the, the moguls as these sort of effete guys dropping mangas into their mouths and playing with white pigeons and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and 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 generally cavorting with dancing girls. But all that is built uh, on a very strong manufacturing base, which is not part of the usual movie picture of the moguls. There is a massive uh, proto-industrial machine going, in, particularly in Bengal, where there's one million weavers. Uh, making the greatest textiles in the world, and those textiles are from a whole variety of different sorts. There are very fancy, transparent silks, and uh, and really gorgeous embroideries that you see up in a lot of National Trust houses as bedspreads and hangings. But the real uh, sort of uh, bread and butter of the trade is the cheapest, best quality cotton in the world so- uh, that's produced in large in large blocks called uh, called piece, uh, piece goods, uh, and these are just you know shoved straight onto East India Company uh, boats. The problem is there's a lot of competition, but the good thing is none of the competition is really coming from India. Uh, the Indians do a bit of local trade across the Bay of, Bay of Bengal and so on, a little bit across to, uh, to the Gulf. But the large scale export trade always remains in European hands from the beginning okay. of, of this whole manufacturing boom. Willie, a, a question
1: oh. I have always had, um, and you were the person to answer it. The, the the English, as you say, are I mean basically they're they're, they're the kind of barbarians who um, great imperial courts have always attracted. Um, it, India has always been this incredibly rich civilization. Uh, barbarians, usually from the you know from the steppes, coming down through Khyber Pass or whatever, you know they've endlessly invaded. Sure. So so in the Vikings sense, coming yes. to
2: to the Varangian uh, yes. Guard in Constantinople so, and, so, and all so, that. So the English
1: in in that sense are just you know. They're, they're barbarians coming to the court of a great king. But as you say, um the Mughal Empire is also a great economic power and it produces everything that it needs. So what are the English using to
2: buy these textiles? Well, this is exactly the the, the issue because uh, despite a lot of very optimistic attempts to sell the Bengali's tweed, for example. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Surely not <laughs> three the <obvious>. suit. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Just what you need, a three-piece suit. Uh, and then they then they have a second round, they, and they try, they try selling the tweed as horse blankets, and even that doesn't go down very well. Um, so, at the end of the day, the answer is nothing. They don't want anything from England. They're quite happy to have the occasional sort of uh, uh, Elizabethan coach or something, given as a present, or trumpets, for example. They, they, they like uh, uh, sort of Purcell-style trumpet voluntaries and, and and all that, and as a guy called Robert Truly defects is one I think the first defector from the East India Company who goes over to Mogul Service as a trumpeter. Uh, but in terms of proper economic uh, trade, it isn't a, a, an exchange of goods because there is frankly nothing. So how are they buy this
1: stuff? Just with silver
2: one. coin, or which which incidentally is is quite different from from the situation in Roman times when the Romans came to. Uh, To India, There are all sorts of things that the Indians wanted for the Romans, like olive oil and wine and a whole range of goods that they could actually trade in. But that's not the case in the the 18th century with the East India Company. So what they do is they just bring gold. And gold flows from Europe into India, gold and silver, neither of which, funnily enough, India has a great deal of, uh, in terms of mines and, and natural resources, India has jewels, has all sorts of good things, but it doesn't have a great deal of gold, Right. Uh, nor does it have a great deal of silver. So the Mughals are very happy to, to do this, but the English parliament is not at all happy about this, because very soon it becomes clear that the, that the country is literally draining. Uh, its reserves of gold and silver for fancy luxuries, which is exactly the complaint that Pliny had in the first century, when uh, he says that all the Roman ladies wanting silks and, and jewels is, is draining the Roman treasury. Now this happens far more in Jacobean England.
1: Okay, so but this is, uh, so this this is pre Adam Smith. Yeah. So this is kind of mercantilist approach that it's it's
2: you're either a winner or a loser. <laughs> but but I guess well Adam Smith is. is Adam Smith is very much around and looking, about, looking at and writing about the company, which he abhors. And it's a very interesting point that, that uh, Adam Smith who is often held up by the right as the kind of the last word in uh, economics, uh, thinks the company's monopoly is one of the most shocking abuses of, uh, uh, of, of economic power uh, out there, and he, he is one of the great opponents of the company. Wants it, wants it to lose its monopoly.
0: So then, Willie, what happens? So at this point, clearly, the Mughals have got this fantastic state manufacturing base, huge army. Uh, you know, the scales seem loaded in India's favor, as it were. So, Correct. So, so what happens to change that? And am I right in thinking it's something to do with the Persians? The Persians Correct. fighting it's, the it's, Mughals. It's a
2: complete. Exactly, it's a complete wild card, uh, and no one sees it coming. Um well the first thing that happens is internal. Uh the Mughals for six generations are led by remarkable uh warriors and, and strategists. And they expand slowly south. Uh, and but the final one, Aurangzeb, the final one of the great Mughals, uh, is uh, overexpands dramatically and spends far too much money uh on on war. And when, when he dies, the whole thing begins to collapse the marathas who are the great warriors of the uh, of the west coast of, of india uh, in the hills above bombay they burst out of their hills and, they're hindu, and right? uh, they are hindu uh, right they are very hindu and very consciously under their leader shivaji opposed to islamic rule that isn't just a modern interpolation you get from the generation after shivaji some extraordinarily uh, uh, sort of modern sounding denunciations of Islamic rule and, and, and it's very consciously Hindu identity. Uh, I'd always assumed it was a modern political spin put on them but in fact uh, Sanjay Subramaniam has 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 dug up a lot of stuff uh, that sounds very much like so RSS propaganda dating from one generation only after Shivaji's death. Uh, so very consciously Hindu, very much uh, going back to uh, Indian antiquity uh, uh, designing uh, kingship ceremonies, uh, which have the, you know, large Vedic Brahminical sacrifices, and this sort of stuff. Uh, And very consciously, uh, a nativist uh, uprising against uh, against Islamic rule from the north. And so those guys uh, in the west coast, you've got the Jats between Delhi and Agra, you've got the Sikhs beginning to uh, rise up in the Punjab. So the whole thing is shaking, but basically still holding over most of India, particularly holding on to Bengal where the money is. It's the, it's the, uh, the tax revenues of Bengal that pays for about two thirds of mobile expenses. So even if, even if the whole of the rest of India goes and they hold on to Bengal, they've still got the money to keep the civil service and the army going. But then out of nowhere, there's what we today would call a military coup in Persia. And the Safavids, who are very much the kind of Persian equivalents of the Mughals, the guys who built Isfahan, uh, Shah Abbas in Persia, uh, uh, building these gorgeous mosques that still stand to this day in Isfahan. That dynasty is snuffed out by a extraordinary, rather grim character called Nadir Shah. And Nadir Shah is from very humble origins, self-made man. His dad made fur hats on the border of Iran and Afghanistan, literally. And he gets into the army and he is also a great military technology buff. He, he designs a, a sort of the, a, the cavalry equivalent of a light tank gun, uh, a Giselle that's enormous, and uh, that's propped up on a horse's neck by a sort of tripod uh, that fires uh, armor-piercing slugs that can pierce any Mughal armor. And in 1738, he comes out of uh, uh, Persia with no intention of ruling India. It's very clear from the beginning that uh, that what he wants is is Mughal cash. Why? In order to fight his two real enemies, who are the Turks and Russians. Uh, And so he goes on this on this looting raid, first into Afghanistan, which is uh, Mughal held. We often forget that the Mughal Empire stretches right up to Kabul. Kabul is the summer capital. Um, And then meeting no resistance, he just carries on. Then he takes Peshawar, then Lahore finally arrives at the Battle of Karnal. He defeats 1.5 million Mughal troops uh, in a brilliant uh, bit, of, bit of strategy. At the Battle Canal, then captures the Mughal emperor person by simply inviting him to dinner and arresting him uh, and marches into Delhi with him. Six weeks later, he leaves with the entire Mughal treasury, the peacock throne, the koh the dari everything that the Mughals have plundered and collected and uh, mined and traded for. Over six generations, he lifts into 6,000 wagons and takes it straight up to Afghanistan and Herat. And, like, I mean, it's this is, you know, you could imagine the Mughal Empire like an enormous Baroque mirror that's just thrown out of a third story window and it lands on the ground and it smashes into a million tiny glittering fragments. And those tiny glittering fragments are every town in India. So Jodhpur declares its independence, Jaipur, Udaipur, all those gorgeous castles in Rajasthan are built at this time because no one's having to send their taxes to Delhi anymore. Um, Tanjore, Hyderabad. It suddenly, where you had one enormous mega state with a million men under arms, you suddenly have a, 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 fragment, a fragmentary uh, uh, scattering of tiny city-states. And-, and the two forces that emerge at this point to hoover that up are the two East India companies, the rival English and
0: French? Perfect. Let's, Tom, I think we should take a break right now. Yeah. And then we'll come back and we'll have the East India companies rise to. Because we've got the, know, the to battle, to, battle to of
1: Plassey and. The battle of Plassey Clive so, and all Warren Hastings all that so, to come. So, so <laughs> we're going to have to, gonna have to speed up. Go we're going to take
0: a break in order to replenish our energy and then we'll come back very, very quickly and move through all this. Okay, back in a sec. This episode is brought to you
1: by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've
0: been really... Struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on, the rest is history, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I
1: got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try,
0: why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you
1: with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp hlp dot slash rest is history. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking the East India Company with Willie Dalrymple. Um, and we are facing, to coin a word, anarchy in India. The Mughal Empire is in a process of implosion. Um, and the East India Company, a company of uh, merchants, are basically parked on the flank of this expiring behemoth. Um, they're in Bengal, which Willy is kind of really, I mean, it's it's the
2: richest area in India, is it? area in the world, probably, right. at this point, because this is one of only two moments of uh, of world history that uh, India is producing more than China. Right. It happened once in, in distant antiquity and then it happens again in the mid-18th OK, century, and
1: so it, 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 it's very important that uh, the taxes are collected. And so there's this magnificent description of this guy called Saeed Reza Khan, who I think you mentioned, uh, who, who would sometimes place erring officials and people who did not pay their taxes into a pit containing waste in such a state of putrefaction as to be full of worms. He also used to oblige them to wear leather long drawers filled with live cats oh, and God. he would force them to drink <laughs> buffalo's milk mixed with salt. So, if the Inland Revenue, I listen, anyone from the Inland Revenue is listening yeah. in on this, I think the, the idea of making tax defaulters wear leather long drawers filled with live cats is a is a brilliant one.
2: I, I recently saw your cat on uh, on Instagram, Tom, where he looked a very quiescent uh, fellow who was extremely patient with his master opening boxes no, of he's, uh, Yorkshire I uh, No, that was even that was that was the female one, but the, but the yeah. male cat. Was, yeah.
1: he's, he's I mean, he We did a podcast yesterday, and uh, he interrupted us actually. So I know the, very I know faroters, the clip So You wouldn't is, want him back. D-
0: Willie is talking about it's the biscuit tea.
1: Um, <laughs> the disgrace, biscuit tea. Exactly. Well, I mean that's very East India tea. company, isn't it? That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's all about. <laughs> um, so, so Willie, essentially, this, there is this apparatus of exploitation that the moguls have been running. To what to to what extent is it fair to say that basically the East India Company just take it over?
2: It's not as neat a comparison as, as, as one might like, because the Mughals, um, whether you take the right-wing Indian view that they're ultimately invaders and foreigners, uh, or you take the Neruvian view that they've uh, been living in India since the 1200s, that they're as uh, Indian as the Norman French are by the 18th century England, uh, that, uh, that they are fully integrated into India and this is their home. Uh, they are they, they rule for the long term, and they invest in simple things that you need to do if you're an Indian ruler in things like grain stores, so that uh, you know everyone knows that, uh, that monsoons fail once every few years, and you need a stock of grain to feed your people. Uh, they invest in in all sorts of long-term uh, 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 economic um, investment, which, which which a country needs. What's notable about the beginning of East India Company rule, is that not only do they, uh, as you suggest, use the Mughal tax system and and draw wealth from that, which they do do uh, extremely efficiently, they have no sense of being responsible for these people. There is no sense in which they are uh, doing anything more than ruling them. And they don't think it's their job. So when, for example, we have this terrific famine, which breaks out, uh, it's not that it's, it's, a worse famine than India's ever seen before. It's just that no one has bothered making any grain stores, or uh, in company territory providing soup kitchens, or uh, right, so, uh, so, or so no more than Amazon so, would so provide soup famine, kitchens now. It's it's, it's yeah. It's, so in in in. In, in, in Lucknow, the same famine takes place, but they uh, ev- the, the Nawab gets everybody to uh, to build an imamvara, which is still there, this enormous white elephant of a building. But you know, people get basic pay; they can they can so buy kingsians. themselves some food, and they, and they don't die. This is Keynesian uh, program, kings, exactly that. Right, exactly. But the company doesn't do that, and it just lets a million people die. So you can draw a real distinction. They're both. Are, uh, are, it's quite true. Uh, are uh, exploitative uh, systems. The Mughal rule uh, taxes very heavily, uh, and in in terms of straight tax, probably taxed a tiny bit more heavily even than the East India Company. But the difference is that the they do very. The Mughals see themselves as rulers and see themselves as having responsibilities as well as uh, uh, the perks of. Of, of ruling a very rich territory the company simply doesn't and everyone is young they're in their 20s they want to get back to england and start a parliamentary career and if there's any way they can just make a quick buck they tend to well that raises and you're a, getting,
0: a good question yeah. willie that we've got from stefan jensen he says who who are these people so you said they're young they're in their 20s he says are they basically the equivalent of people working on apprenticeship elite apprenticeships Schemes for sort of strategic consultancies and investment banks today when they leave Oxbridge, or or are they are they people exactly from the bottom that. who are working their way up, or what are they exactly?
2: So in terms of class, uh, the, the perennial English question, um, yeah. they're mid they're, they're middle upper rank, but they're not the top um, simply because so many people die in the East India Company. I mean, the simple fact is, if you if you join the East India Company at the age of sixteen, which was the oldest you could join it. Uh, everyone, the oldest they were literally the oldest they, they, they were taking kids of 15 and shipping them out and then they spend a year or two in the writer's building learning accountancy and languages and then they off they go
1: and then they die right. uh, and most of them
2: if they can are out are out by 30 uh, or 35 and what's the death rate um, would
0: you
2: two
1: say thirds. goodness and, two thirds and of that,
2: two thirds die and one third die the first year okay wow. uh, so it's wow. a massive carnage and you go to those Cemeteries in Calcutta, Park Street Cemetery, and there's these lines and lines of Georgian obelisks, and and you know a lot of them die, one or two years. A lot of them are children. Some of them get married out there, uh, and and their children just die. Uh, as 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 one English or Scottish sailor, Alexander Hamilton puts it, they die like rotting sheep in Bengal. Uh, so so if you were a uh, 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 top-top, if you were the Duke of Devonshire's son, you wouldn't join the East India Company. However, if you were from the background my family, which were from, which was provincial Scottish gentry whose income never quite matched their social aspirations. You pile in. This is absolutely <laughs> what, where you send your younger brothers and younger sons <laughs> in the hope that one of them will live long enough to make some money. And in the case of my wife's family, the Frasers, famously, six go out, one comes back. So, Willie... This this
1: attritional rate it means as you said you said at the beginning of the of the episode um, basically that th- there are very few British people out there and so very and so when we look at Clive amazing. who I guess is the the archetype of the self made man who scams and tricks and strong arms his way to a position of incredible wealth um, he 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 wins the battle of Plassey he essentially conquers Bengal. He's doing that in association with a lot of Indian backers, right? I mean, it's 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 Correct. it's not a, a kind of British takeover. It's it's an Anglo-Indian coup, essentially.
2: So the crucial point about Plassey is that it's not just he's doing it in association with a lot of Indian backers. He is paid to do yeah. it by an Indian bank- banker. He hadn't thought of fighting Plassey. He, he, so the story, in a nutshell, is that the Seven Year War is about to break out, uh, and the East India Company get given. A, uh, a dossier, a dodgy dossier, an intelligence dossier, that turns out to be completely wrong. Uh, and some captain has seen a whole load of French ships loading cannon uh, at port Lorient, uh and heading off and tells the city company it's heading to Bengal. In fact, it's heading to Canada. And that's where the Seven Year War in the end breaks out. Uh, with a lot of sort of, you know, uh, Last of the Mohican stuff, of uh, war canoes crossing Lake Huron and all that sort of stuff, um, and scalping and in up and top Washington state and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, but because of this, the East India Company goes to the Admiralty and says, we've got a report saying that there's uh, a, a huge French fleet going to attack Bengal. And so they send out Robert Clive, who has already been out to India once before, made a name for himself, as as a a rubbish accountant, but an incredibly talented, untrained soldier. Uh, He's this sort of weird, (laughs) extraordinary, suicidal man who twice has failed to shoot himself through depression, uh, but who then finds his metier in soldiering against the French. So he's the most
1: lethal accountant Uh, in history.
2: In a way. He's the most lethal <laughs> accountant. I mean there are many lethal accountants uh, <laughs> in, in, the, in the annals, but uh, he's definitely the number one badass accountant. <laughs> and he has this sort of suicidal tendency. He he attacks at night in in monsoon thunderstorms from the rear. He and he and you know it could so easily, everything he does could so easily go wrong. And yet he has this amazing sense of how far he can push things, how to size up an opponent. When he's attacking, so he, he comes out to India, finds there's no French fleet, and you know it's, it's an embarrassing situation. But luckily, the news comes that Calcutta has fallen to the uh, Nawab Siraj ud-Daulah. So he sails his his navy fleet of marines up to uh, up to the Hooghly, and he takes Calcutta back. And he's about to go home. And, he and, and to Willie, dad, this so is this is way. the um, back
1: hole of Calcutta incident.
2: This is after the Black Hole yes. So Suraj has captured <laughs>
1: Calcutta from the British, bunged them in the black hole, Correct. or have they, you know, much debated, and then he retreats.
2: Definitely, definitely there was a black hole. The question is how many yep. died, and, and estimates okay. vary widely, yep. whether it's 100 or whether it's just 60 or something, yep. or 40. But however many died, uh, and we'll never actually know the figure, Clive, by chance, because of this dodgy dossier, is on hand with a fleet. Uh, and rather than attacking the French, he turns it on Siraj, takes Calcutta, and is about to go home. Job done. And at that point, and this is a crucial point, the point that's often obfuscated in both English and Brit- and Indian accounts of the battle, the at Set, who is the big banker, who's invented a way of getting tax revenue from Bengal to Delhi without marching it out physically. In the old days, you'd take the tax revenue, put it on a on a line of 100 bullet carts and march it through UP to Delhi. Uh, but because Delhi and, and UP has now given way to anarchy, it's very difficult to get the money through in a physical form. So the Jagat set says, no problem, just deliver it to my office in Moshidabad, and you can draw it uh, by credit in Delhi, and I will take 15%, thank you very much. Uh, and because of the, the, the anarchy and because of the difficulty of getting uh, fi- finance there physically, the, the Mughal emperors do this, and 15% of the Bengal tax revenues go to this one banking, And so Willie, that Willie. turn into... How, just finish yeah. the story they, so they they turn into the Rothschilds of India and it's those guys who write to Clive and say don't go back to Madras quite yet finish the job march up to Mashidabad two days march from Calcutta and kill Siraja Dowler and I will pay you personally Robert Clive one million pounds and I will pay the East India Company a further one million pounds and Clive says thank you very much he doesn't ask anyone he doesn't write to Madras it's a totally different mission to the one he had been sent on but he goes and does it And once he's in there and Siraj is dead, he marches into the Moshidabad treasury and literally fills first his pockets and then 60 barges with gold, which are then punted downstream to Fort William. When he's asked later uh, by the parliamentary inquiry uh, why he just felt he could do this, he said, my lords, I was astonished at my own moderation. (laughs) (laughs) So So, so what's what's fascinating
1: about this story is... That there's a, there seems to be a kind of Anglo-Indian synergy. So you've got Clive basically behaving like, you know, like Nader Shah. I mean, he's basically doing exactly the same. Yes. Um, Correct. But you also you have, you know, we we know that capitalism is developing in England and, and Britain, and the East India Company is kind of riding that wave. But clearly, you also have capitalism emerging in India. You've got these kind of proto bitcoin kind of developing in india so so what's are there, is it british capitalism that's interviews it, 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 that's um influencing the way that indian merchants operate or is it indian merchants that are influencing how the british operate or are they kind of fusing to create this hybrid anglo-indian
2: form of of capitalism so so what you've got is is two groups of bankers speaking the same language to each other And although one lot are vegetarian Hindus and Jains, uh, originally from Jodhpur state, the Mawaris, who are this, the Mawaris are the kind of uber bankers uh, of India, even today, they own something like 25% of Indian capital, where there's only a handful of them. Uh, And a lot of the big houses, uh, uh, a lot of the big business houses in India to this day are Mawari. Um, And so... The, the Jagat Sets want business as usual, and they're making a fortune lending money to people like the East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, and the Portuguese, and the Danes, and the French. And Sirajah Downer raiding Calcutta is not just a threat to the East India Company, it's a threat to the Jagat Sets. So they say, we've got to get rid of this this complete psychopath, Sirajah Downer, who clearly, incidentally... You know, uh, British propaganda against the Rajadala is not just British propaganda against Rajadala. He was clearly a complete psycho. And the Mughal accounts and French accounts and everyone's accounts uh, make this clear. So, Jugger Set paid for the East India Company to use its military force on Indians for the first time. And from that point, not just the Jugger Sets, but other Indian bankers continue to pour their finances to the, Mo- uh, to, to the East India Company. Why? because the East India Company are businessmen. They understand the conception of interest and repaying on time and the uh, gradations of, uh, of of incremental uh, uh, interest that you must pay if you're late and so on. While if you're lending, say, to a Maratha warlord and you ask for your money back, he's quite likely to hang you up by your heels and, 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 and beat you to death. Uh, and so there's a very clear mutual understanding of mutual interests going on between Indian bankers and the company and they are you know they're the same sort of people talking the same sort of language and they all make a huge profit together.
0: Willie I want to ask a question because you're talking about the Seven Years War and how this happens in the context of the Seven Years War and that raises an excellent question which Michael Priest sent in on Twitter. He says if the East India Company didn't exist or if it had been slower to grasp these opportunities would an uh, another European competitor let's say the French or the Dutch, particularly the French, I guess, since we're in the late 18th century, would not they have moved in and done precisely the same thing?
2: The answer is quite possibly. Uh, the, um, uh, the Dutch are kind of out of the picture by the time of plassey yeah. they're, they're still around in Indonesia, but they're certainly no longer the great days of the VOC. Uh, and, uh, and as a military force, they don't really exist. But the French very much are around and they are less efficient business operation than the English East India Company because they're controlled by the court in Versailles uh, and the court in Versailles doesn't really understand business but the, uh, the East India Company is just run by a bunch of merchants who do understand finance right. and, yeah. and profit uh, and therefore it responds to economic need much more readily than the, the, the French East India Company which is always a political operation. Right. is it also that Clive
0: so, can act quickly in a way that maybe a Frenchman would be more frightened That's because of the court or something? That's maybe not the
2: case, because you get, these, I mean, you get these early on. I mean, Clive's first victories in the 1740s, a, ge- a decade before Classy, are against these very quick-witted um, Frenchmen, one of whom is the son of Lord Deloriston, who sets up the whole uh, French East India Company in the first place and who creates the whole French banking network. Uh, uh, and, and one of the most interesting figures, a Scotsman originally who fled Scotland with a with a, 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 a due, after a duel uh, over a point of honour, and becomes the big the big French banker? Uh, there's a fantastic uh, James and biography last year. His son is the adversary of Clive in the 1740s in the Carnatic Wars, and and the, and the French operate very efficiently there. So yes, the, the, there is a strong possibility that had um, uh, Clive not existed, had and had the Lord de Loristons had the run of the game. Uh, that you'd now have uh, French as the spoken language of uh, of India, and maybe rather better food in, uh, in the <laughs> Bengal clubs than than brown Windsor soup, which is still served. Well, to this I,
1: day. I, I remember going to Pondicherry and having a croissant, so a that, that little glimpse there of what might have been. But Willie, just to broaden that question out, so so the British basically annex Bengal, and then the next kind of major focus for for military engagement by this point, the, the company have realised that they can recruit armies is that they, they come up against Tipu Sultan in Mysore, in the south of India, who's a great enthusiast for rockets. Dominic, we were talking about Congreve rockets. It's Congreve Tipu, rockets. Tipu Sultan, who basically Absolutely. invents them. Um, for, for, for the Hindus, say, in southern India, who are afflicted by the kind of anarchy, by rival warlords, whatever, what's the difference between the British and Tipu Sultan? They're both monotheists. Um, does it make any difference to them who, who the ruler is?
2: So this is in a sense, one of the great questions that it, uh, Indians have asked for 50 years and you get completely different answers depending on which end of the political spectrum you are. For, for a leftist Neruvian, uh Tipu is a son of the soil whose ancestors have been uh, in India for you know possibly 700 years or 600 years by this stage. And, uh, and who is as Indian as anyone else. However, if you ask a historian like Swapandas Gupta on the Hindu right, you'll say, you no, know, they are outsiders. They look to Mecca. Or V.S. Naipaul's attitude to Indian Muslims. They, they, they're not fully Indian. They're somehow different. And this is, you know, the big debate in uh, in, in India today. Are, are Indian Muslims okay. part of India or are they not? And, and the Nehruvians say, yes, they are. The BJP and the RASS say they're not. They are, are and, you know, the, the founder of the, uh, RSS, uh, compares them to the Semitic minority in Europe, the Jews. And we must do, says Gowalka, in We, Our Nation, have defined the original uh, RSS uh, uh, policy document, if you like. Uh, we must do to our minority what the Germans did to theirs at Kristallnacht.
1: But, but Willie, in, in terms of the 18th century, late 18th century, beginnings of the 19th century, the mass of Indians who who are Hindu, when they look at Muslims, mus- Muslim sultans or British company, uh, Christian company officers do they feel no we can't have the british because they are completely foreign or does it not really make any difference who their rulers is as long as the rulers are providing a measure of stability a measure of of security and is that why the the, the, the eastern company is able to establish its rule ultimately is that enough indians are willing to accept it as as basically the kind of the guarantee, the guarantor of security, no matter how rapacious they may be, because basically, you know, Indian peasantry are used to, to to be You know, that's the kind of standard for centuries and centuries.
2: So if I'm asking my, my opinion, um, my opinion is that there is a huge difference for an Indian between being ruled by, uh, the East India Company and Tipu Sultan, um, Yes, both are uh, a different religion to the Hindus, but Tipu Sultan's culturally become part of India. If you go around Karnataka today, although he has a reputation for having uh, destroyed temples uh, of his enemies outside his kingdoms, all the temples around Mysore have what they call Padshal Lingams, which were given by Tipu Sultan to the great temples uh, across Mysore and and, uh, Karnataka and Tamil Nadu. I don't think it's the same. But is the second part of your question is it true that people bat the company for stability? Unquestionably, yes. And, and that's particularly the merchant class. Uh, the jagat sets are not alone. There is a whole uh, uh, a swathe of business India that consistently lends to the company, in preference to lending to Tipu or the Marathas. Uh, even though the Marathas are the same, uh, yeah. are the same religion and the same and and the Marathas for example you know burst through Bengal in the 1740s and and do a lot of looting and plundering of what they regard as Mughal territory even though the majority of the people there are Hindu Uh, and this is one of the big things that leads to the growth of Calcutta because Calcutta, which had been a small merchant uh, a, a colony, grows enormously in the 1740s, because it has what is still called the Maratha Ditch. It's now a, a ring road, uh, but it was the ditch dug by the um, uh, by the company to protect Calcutta against the Marathas, and the Marathas never attacked Calcutta. So that's also the point at which a lot of the Marwari bankers moved from Rajasthan to Bengal. And uh, on top of this, the company establishes in Calcutta uh, a system a bit like Dubai today, where basically rich people can go tax-free if they invest their wealth uh, in in the colony. Uh, And so you get this huge hemorrhage of of bankers from North India moving to Calcutta to avoid taxes and to be protected by British guns. So although it's a very, uh, in a sense that explains the difficult thing for us which we find so hard to understand how so many indians could act against what we presume to be indian national interest by becoming a sepoy or lending money to this this rapacious greedy uh, aggressive foreign company uh, people people went to it because it protected them and because uh, they could make money out of it, even though the, it might mean the destruction of, of various dynasties and the looting of, uh, of the unlucky. If you were a rich merchant, you could make your money by joining hands with the company, lending the money and, uh, and, and retire with, with huge fortunes, which, which the, the British assist the merchant classes in stripping from the mogul aristocracy and giving to the new, the new rising banking and, and, and merchant classes.
0: Okay Willie, we're running out of time a bit so um tell what what go I don't believe that Ben McIntyre said to you that you wouldn't get a word in edwards I, mean, I mean that's... I mean
2: and if he did you've you, you've proved him
0: comprehensively wrong I will say um, so shrinking violent so 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 what goes wrong right what goes wrong the, the east india company is there it's making tons of money uh, it's got collaborators you know life goes on in india if you're an East India Company man, all seems rosy. What goes wrong in the mid 19th century?
2: So two things go wrong. First of all, something goes wrong in the late 18th century. Um, you get such comprehensive asset stripping of Bengal after Plassey and Buxer. Plassey is 1756, Buxer is 1765. These two great company victories leaving no effective opposition in North India to the company. And at that point, these guys just literally uh, just, just, you know, they strip everything that, isn't, that can move. They start locking weavers up in uh, sort of weaving concentration camps. Uh, so that allegedly, according to one uh, source, uh, they start cutting their own thumbs off so that they're useless, can't weave, and can escape this, this sort of slavery. And when the 1770 famine breaks out, and between one and six million people die, according to whose accounts you take, probably around two million. Uh, The company actually goes bankrupt. This company that had seemed too big to fail, which had been sending vast sums of money home. Millions are exported during the famine uh, by individual company men who've made profits profiteering. Um, And um, in 1772, uh, between 7070 and 7072 the company goes properly bankrupt they first go to the bank of england which is just set up and doesn't have enough money to save it so what happens is that Parliament meets and you get the same thing as, as, as Gordon Brown did for NatWest after the uh, 2008 bank collapses. They, it basically, uh, it turns the East India Company from a, uh, the ultimate libertarian free market economic uh, buccaneer into a sort of public-private partnership. So by 1774, in the Regulating Act, the company is half owned by the British state. And that's the beginning of state involvement in the company, right. which increases towards the 19th century so that by the 1830s the, the company's not really functioning as a merchant uh uh organization at all it's become like a governing corporation rather like the bbc uh, uh the idea of the bbc conquering it is the last making, of the corporations making the, the,
0: forcing the, people to make terrible radio 4 comedy shows <laughs> well
2: this is this is literally the 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 same, uh, the same charter of corporation which is given to the company it is still held by the BBC. It's exactly thought. the same mechanism thought. of state. <laughs> amazing yeah. thought. Um, okay. Anyway, the, so, the, so the, gradually into the 19th century, the company becomes less and less about trade and more and more about government. And then uh, the apple cart is, is overturned due to the increasing evangelical proselytization uh, of, of company generals during the great evangelical uh, boom of the, of the 1820s and 1830s and the Clapham sect and all these happy clappy evangelicals come out to India and start reading the Bible to sepoys on parade who are all good Brahmin vegetarians who do not want to be told about eating the body of Christ. And um, that for, the, for this very brief period, and it is a very short period of about 20 years, the company suddenly embraces evangelical Christianity, largely through somebody called Charles Grant, who's a leading evangelical, becomes the director of the company, and uh, this leads to the massive anti-colonial uprising that we in this country still call the Indian mutiny, and which in India is known as the First War of Independence. Uh, whatever you call it, both of it, which are the inaccurate, anti- basically. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I call it, in the last mogul, which deals with this, I call it the great uprising yeah. because it, it, it's, it is a mutiny, uh, but it's also joined by large swathes of population in certain places like that now, and then tribal groups and all sorts of people jump aboard. And uh, in 1857, there breaks out the largest anti-colonial revolt to take place any the world, anywhere in the world at any point. And hundreds of thousands of people die and it's a complete bloody mess. Uh, a lot of the British population in India is slaughtered at the beginning. A lot of the Indian population of North India is slaughtered in the retribution which follows. And Parliament meets in 1858 and says, enough's enough. Lots of people have been saying, you know, this is a ridiculous way to run your best colony, to hand it over to a bunch of merchants sitting in the city of London. Clearly, it's a, and people have been saying this right, very loudly in Parliament. Quick all interjection, the 1830s quick interjection, really. at yeah.
0: the beginning, you said the British didn't take India, the East India Company did, so it wasn't a British thing. But there you just said this is a ridiculous way to run our best colony. So have attitudes changed then? And people now think. And, India, and the reality ours. has
2: changed because the, the company, which was this libertarian free market thing for 200 years, in its last 50 years does become increasingly a government, right. uh, a, a government agency. Uh, and the governor general is appointed by parliament. Uh, yeah. So Lord, Lord Wellesley, for example, uh, hates the company and regards it as a bunch of cheesemakers. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: <laughs> Never trust a cheesemaker, like Alex Never James. Never trust a cheesemaker. Uh, and uh, 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 so Wellesley is, you know, is a fascinating figure because he's a, he's a young, ambitious parliamentarian, the elder brother of the Duke of Wellington, and he comes out determined to use the army of the East India Company, a corporation, for the British state needs. Right. So he uses it to attack French interests in India, even though the director said, no, 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 we don't want this. We just want a peaceful trade. We want to make a profit. And Wellesley overrules them and bankrupts the company, spends a vast quantity of cash, borrows massively. And also, incidentally, builds massive buildings like the Governor General's house, a palace modelled on Kedleston. It's uh, such and, an odd uh, story. It's 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 such an extraordinary story. story. (laughs) So (laughs) I think, well, I think, I mean, I think we've, we've. And then it's nationalized. Yes. 1858, it's nationalized and it becomes the Raj. But the kind of weird thing is that the Raj, which is so famous, you know, and has occupied Sunday night dramas in Britain. And we all know about Kipling and so on. But the Raj only lasts 90 years. Yeah. It doesn't even make a century.
1: Yeah.
2: It started 1858. It's abolished 1947. And we've forgotten that the much longer period is the 250 years when India is run by a private corporation out of one office in London.
1: Well, Willie, thank you so much. You have, um, I don't think anyone listening to this will have any excuse for not appreciating <laughs> the astonishing way in which um, British rule came to India. Uh, I mean, it, it is an amazing story and you, you tell it brilliantly. Um, your thank four you. books Yankee, White Moguls, Return of a King, The Last Mogul, The Company Quartet, out now. Uh, do buy them if you haven't read them. Um Thanks so much. Uh We will be back next week. Can't remember what with, but... So, something historical. Something believe, probably <laughs> historical. It's a, it's a fair hunch.
2: I think we want Danes. We want Danes in English. Uh, we've had
0: that. We've, we've done that. We've, we've done that. You're clearly not listening. You're clearly not <laughs> no, listening
2: no, to no, our audience. Catch episode. up with the backlog,
1: Willie. Yeah. There's a football Do you talk- mean all those there's a football all tournament those, going on all those
2: on. gags had already been we're old gags you were, you had it so readily on your twitter feed that night Tom. i'm very disappointed it's
1: all gone into the podcast <laughs> nothing goes to waste here <laughs> willie thanks so much uh, and um, we you. will see you all soon bye-bye bye-bye thanks for listening to the rest is history For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
2: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference.